Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. What I try to think is, I'm just this guy from the backstage trying to prepare the stage so that the best climbers in the world, they can show the best they can. This is Adam Pustelnik. He grew up climbing in Poland, and today he lives in Oslo, Norway. He's got a pretty incredible climbing resume, kind of an all-around badass, and he's being pretty humble, describing himself as a stagehand. How did you get into climbing? My father, he's a Himalayan climber. He climbed all of the 8,000-meter peaks, and uh, they've been out together with my mom in the mountains and the rocks, and this was the natural environment. So family, yeah? family business, you could say, <laughs> in quite a typical way as well. <laughs> though, though it's hard to imagine a bigger contrast between climbing 8,000-meter peaks in the Himalaya versus root setting in the gym. Well, um, in a way, it kind of explains things because, uh, you know, if, if you get introduced to, a, to an activity such as climbing and it was early 90s when I was discovering that, yeah, well, in fact, this is something I'd like to do and I would, I would really like to do. And then you've got your father who's doing 8,000 meter peaks. And at the same time, you're a young teenager trying to be rebel against everything that's around you. And the first thing you can rebel against is like, what your parent is doing and he's doing these 8,000 meter peaks. So you're going to go sport climbing and show him that this is, this is fucking best. This is better. You know, it, uh, it, it's definitely much better than what you do. And I'm going to show you I'll be good at it. So in a way, it all kind of, you know, comes together. What was your role in Tokyo? I was the um, chief route setter for lead climbing on the Olympic Games on uh, on this part. So I was he- I was the head of the of the team that was preparing the routes for lead part of the competition. Adam had a team of five: three other route setters and two other assistant setters who served as stand-in climbers to test the route that they were creating. And their job is to create the playing field, which is kind of a crazy thing. Like other sports. They kind of have a, you know, pretty steady thing. There's a pool, there's a baseball field, whatever it is. But climbing, every competition, they have to redesign it. And that design serves two major purposes. First, there's a pragmatic one. They've got to design a route that separates the competitors, right? If a route is too hard or too easy, it creates ties and ties suck. Ideally, they're going to make something that delineates the field of competition kind of separates everyone by a few moves. The second purpose is an aesthetic one. Yeah, you you try to do up something, especially for the Olympics, where you have quite a lot of material and you're there to really present something nice. You try to do something that on the wall will will look nice, will look appealing, will look for, you know, for for us as climbers, if we stand under a route like this, it would be nice that we feel, yeah, I want to climb this stuff. Not that, oh my God, this is just... A piece of chalk, and now, I'm, now I have to try to, I have to try to dig into it and, and do my best. What they create needs to entertain, to create dynamic movements that make crowds of ten thousand cheer. And in a perfect world, it lifts up the sport. It can be televised. It can shine a spotlight on the athleticism of some of the world's best. And to do that, they have to work basically around the clock to get it done. To set the lead routes, they use a hydraulic lift to work their way up the wall. The refining. 
building, taking the route until it's complete. It's a super important and super, I think, cool part of the job because it's kind of like a little bit of a, of a trip to the mountains together. You know, you go through some experience together with with your with your colleague, with your partner there on the on the lift. You know, the competition that unfolded during the men's finals in Tokyo was about as dramatic as competition can get. Like it, it was incredible. It was a moment. Those routes looked inspiring to climb. You know, if I could climb that hard, I'm sure they would look super fun. But instead, I was like, whoa, those look impossible. But but really aesthetic. I mean, incredible separation in the fields. And and so how did you guys manage to create such such perfect finals routes? I mean, like, how, how did you know that those routes would work? Fuck, I don't want to say we were lucky, but uh, we we um, we made a lot of decisions that turned out to be the good decisions at the end of the day. And uh, after a long process, uh, we uh, it, it somehow all fell into into one correct kind of uh, result. But I had this feeling in 2016 on a final of the World Championships in Paris. Adamon reset himself up. He's already celebrating. Where there was uh, a, f- a final of men. Charlie, the crowd are on their feet here just to watch Adam. And every competitor, every next person coming out on the stage was getting one or two moves higher until Adam came out, did the route, and I mean, there was more than 10,000 people in Paris-Bercy. Everybody was standing, like a standing ovation. Adam Ondra, the greatest we've ever seen. The guy was crying, you know, everybody was completely happy. And I was like, okay, well, once in a lifetime, it's never going to happen again. Possibly one of the greatest bit of route settings we've ever seen as well. That is exactly how they wanted it to go down. And the crowd has gone ballistic. Adam thought that that moment in Paris in 2016, the right route, the right set of competitors, right venue with Andre besting Jakob Schubert at the very top with an enormous audience, that it would probably never happen again. It would be like lightning hitting twice. And then, Tokyo. To make all of these things fit like this, you're just uh, uh, you're just one piece of a puzzle as a root setter. There has to be so many things around it and the athletes have to be, I mean, like, again, it's them, the players. If they don't feel correct, if they don't feel motivated, if they don't feel like they're pushing until the very limit, th- this show might not happen even if the route is perfect. And that's why I'm saying like maybe there is this part of being lucky sometimes with things, or maybe it's just that the moment is there. Yeah, yes. That's actually what I loved about the men's finals, that it was this perfect expression where it looked like everybody tried their absolute hardest. They all climbed really well. They all made it very high in the route, you know, fighting in a like it, it was a good battle. And you're like, oh, wow, everybody's really trying hard. And then to to have Jakob Schubert come out and top the route as the last climber is just so dramatic, so exciting. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful moment. We just describe what you were feeling watching the last few competitors? Uh, well, I wanted them to get as high as possible. And the moment when, of course, the moment when I saw that, that, that Jakob is passing, the moment where Adam fell, I was just cheating for him to top the route, you know, because uh, that, that, that would have been the perfect scenario. And uh, he was just climbing so so high that I still have my short kind of video with, with Jakob topping the route. Yeah. I just hear myself and the other guys just laughing and screaming because it all worked out. And I've, I think I just bloody dropped the camera somewhere, threw it out. That is the sound of a person who has just done their job at the highest possible level on the biggest stage imaginable. 
It's so good. It reminds me of uh, overexcited moms at competitions or like family members at competitions that drop the phone and screaming into the camera. I, I really like that clip. It's, it's so, uh, it just makes me smile every time I even think about it. At the start of the show, Adam described himself almost like a stagehand. And it got us thinking. Think about Hollywood, right? Most people know the stars. The Brad Pitts, the Meryl Streeps. They're in front of the camera. They can transport us. They allow us to suspend disbelief for a moment, to step into the lives of other people or be transported to other worlds. They seem iconic, singular. Yet, they're a part of an equation we rarely bother to notice, right? Their performance wouldn't exist without a director, without the years a cinematographer put in behind a camera, or the steady hand of an editor working in a dark room. Route setting. As a craft, it's not something most climbers take a moment to step back and think about very often. Today we talked to Tande Catillo, climber, route setter, and designer, about the unseen craft of route setting. If you want to move a sport forward and truly understand it, you need to take it apart and put it back together again. I'm Alex Honnold. I'm Fitz Cahal. This is Climbing Gold. My name is Tande Katio. I'm French by nationality. I grew up in Zimbabwe until I was about 14. And then I moved to France and lived in Paris uh, for 20 something years. Worked as a graphic designer in Paris uh, for like 10 years, which was great. I was freelance, so I had a lot of time to, like I could work really hard for periods and then just like save up money and then go on climbing trips. Got tired of that just like sitting in front of a screen, being in the city, ad agencies and people who I didn't share values with. Um, so I quit that. And then my only other marketable skill happened to be route setting at that point. So I was like, well, I hope this works out. And here I am. If you look at the history of climbing, we started by just wanting to get to the top of these big mountains. For some reason, getting to the top was not enough. We had to get to the top a harder way. You know, I want to go this way and I'm going to go up this steep face and, you know, brave this thing. Every time there was a modernization of the sport that came through technology, through, you know, gear and, um, and just the boldness and experience that uh, younger climbers were learning from a previous generation the challenge of what they wanted to climb just seemed to get smaller, you know, it was like multi-pitch, you know, alpine, and then people started realizing, oh, I don't actually have to go to the mountains, there's this cliff over here. And then we went through the sport climbing phase, you know, where you're climbing, you know, 30 meter, 100 foot, 120 foot routes. The, the, the climbing of today is just a few moves. Lucid dreaming, which is literally just two moves. And people will travel for that and train for that and dream for that and, you know, be amazed by just two moves. Every time there's a new chapter in, in, in climbing, the previous one has to, you know, diss it or bash it and there has to be some, some battle. But every time a new chapter emerged, the previous one continued to thrive. You know, alpinism and mountaineering is still alive and thriving today and people are still doing amazing things. This next evolution happens to be rockless. It's artificial climbing, it's plastic and wood. 
I don't think the hardest routes that have been climbed in the past five to 10 years would have been climbed if it wasn't for climbing gyms. Human capacity in terms of climbing movement is hugely expanded by the fact that now we can you know, train and question and explore movement um, through these artificial medium. And there is a dialogue happening there's a couple of moves, you know, the big dino Kevin did on the dawn wall, Adam's upside down flipping on, on silence, uh, yeah, three degrees of separation. I think all of those moves, if you look into the DNA of the movement, um, you can find plastic and gym climbing and intensity and, and uh, skill. The Roots Tande references, Kevin Jorgensen's dino pitch on the dawn wall. Adam Andre's silence, Chris Sharma's insane sequence of dinos on three degrees of separation, all consist of the type of athletic movement that 20 years ago would have seemed impossible to find outside. We've explored so many different types of movement and such a wide range of possibility um, to unlock the mysteries on you know, rocks, and, but it seems like there's still endless possibilities. And this is Tande's specialty, the design and creation of movement with an eye towards furthering the possibilities. Tande very quietly became one of the most influential climbers and a thought leader in commercial and competition route setting. He's been a regular setter for the IFSC Bouldering World Cups, and his decade of work as director of setting at the Bouldering Projects became the benchmark for gym setting in America. I essentially choose to practice route setting like music. Every boulder is a song. It can be played at so many different tempos and express so many different things, and I can do it with a whole bunch of different people in different ways. It feeds me and it grows me and I have observed that it has a positive impact on the world around me. For me, success is getting people to have an emotion. And it's not just a technical or an intellectual experience climbing. It has to be an emotional one. And I don't think people climb for the intellectual reasons. They climb for something that's more you know, deep-rooted in the gut or in the heart. Tony, could you give us an example of how how you apply something like design theory to root setting. Early in my career, I was really uh, like uh, set on um, trying to uh, be a better root setter. I wanted to be the best root setter that I could. And one of the first questions I wanted to tackle is I wanted to be able to set a root or a boulder to the grade that was asked like first go. I considered that, you know, that was an expectation. Somebody says, you know, make a grilled cheese and you come out and you're like, whoops, that's a brownie and you have to like adjust things. Because um, that's kind of how root setting is. You know, you put things on the wall thinking it's going to work one way and it comes out really different. Um, and then you tweak and adjust or not. Sometimes the brownie's the better option. What I did is I recorded a whole bunch of data. Um, hold style, hold shape. I tried to define styles. And it all ended up being uh, kind of a dead end except for these three parameters. Um, risk, intensity, and complexity. Breaking down the idea of what makes something hard. Why is it difficult? And from observing people, I realized three main components that help understand uh, why something will be difficult for one person more than another. And so these three concepts are risk, intensity, and complexity. And in a conversation with you, who has a lot of uh, experience around the concept of risk, um, I have to specify that I talk about risk in the context of um, a climbing gym. But the idea uh, of having to commit to something, having to, it's not about strength. Um, I describe risk as um, a mental challenge. You know 
the move is not that difficult. Every You've done it before. Uh, it's a small, risky foot. It's not easy to repeat again. And every time you get in position, you're loading up just to do it, your brain is like, wait, 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 I'm not sure. And there's no physical limitation to it. There's no, you know, necessarily technical limitation. Again, you may have done the move multiple times before, but you're not sure you can control it all the way through. And usually the best way to do that is to is like to respond with this idea of committing, of being very confident, and it's a product of your mental attitude. Risk is, plays a big part in coordination moves, and it's not so much about how hard it is to do, it's just about believing you can do it. Um, and then uh, intensity is just like physical ability, you know, how, uh, how taxing it is on your body, whether you can do the move or not at all. And if you can, how many times you can do it um, in competitions in the given time, it's kind of the easiest to understand. And then complexity is, you know, what we, what we describe as beta. If you know what to do, it is easier. And figuring out how difficult it is to figure out what to do um, can be a huge part of the challenge. And that's part of, it's all part of climbing. Um, so I just found it really interesting to explode that, you know, and explore things in, and so I created this scale called the RIC scale where, um, I give, uh, I attach a grade, uh, which is a grade or a group of people or a person. And I try and evaluate for that group of people in general. Um, let's say finalists in a world cup. Um, based on their experience, their strength level, their general ability, how challenging is this going to be? And I give a value to each, each of those parameters. Risk, intensity, and complexity. These are the basic building blocks of what makes climbing climbing, what makes it interesting both outdoors and indoors. It's why we remember a straightforward mantle move 20 feet above a piece of gear. It's the draw of an all-out dyno the light bulb that suddenly goes off when you've tried and failed on a boulder problem 50 times and tweak the subtlest position of your hips and suddenly succeed. Understanding those three parameters and how they interact and balance with each other, you can understand based on you know, the personality of a climber how they're going to respond to a certain uh, style of climbing. So there's climbers who we know are really good at high-intensity climbing, and then we vulgarly say, oh, but he's bad at slab. But it, is he bad at slab or is he bad at climbing that's mentally challenging? Because it doesn't have to be slabby. Um, some people are bad at slab, but some people are just bad with things that get more mental, more intellectual, that are more about problem solving, and they, they can't just throw themselves at it. Because there's so many different people out there, we have to find, for me, the ideal comp round is one where everybody has a boulder that they love and is completely their style. One of them is one they're going to hate and is not really their style. And two other things are somewhere in the middle. And for each person, it's a different combination. That's like the ideal round. Certain people can deal with certain levels of exposure, of stress, of challenge in different ways. I could set for a World Cup in finals, say, four V9s. On paper, all the boulders would be graded V9. But then if you looked at the RIC, the numbers would be really different and would tell a story of why a certain climber didn't do this one and why they might do this one and why they flashed this one it makes sense so it's it's helped mostly with the dialogue and conversation we have um, around uh, uh, well creating climbing you know when we make it how do we 
keep things in balance? How do we keep things diverse? How do we challenge people uh, in lots of different ways? After the break, Tane breaks down the competition and we use the Rick system to figure out why Alex probably wouldn't hack it at a World Cup. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next-generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I first found Koros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Koros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. Their Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing training and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. Tane, uh, how well do you know the strengths and weaknesses of competitors for events that you're setting for? And to what extent are you setting for specific individuals? That's a good question. Uh, It depends. Um, At any given time, so examples that have happened in the past, I've set for um, earlier in the season for certain athletes on uh, national teams, be it the French, be it the Japanese, uh, Scandinavian before the season begins, they do training camps and um, they hire me to set World Cup style boulders. If I have the opportunity to do that um, and I see the same climbers over and over, then I get a better understanding of what their strengths and weaknesses are. Um, It can be more or less uh, accurate. We're very often wrong. Like, you know, we make predictions, we can make we can make guesses. We, we, they're very informed. Many, many times I've said, oh, so-and-so, nah, she doesn't have the guns to do this or he doesn't have the footwork for that or, and they've proven me wrong. Um, so we have knowledge and understanding. And here's the trick. We need it. We need that information to, to set the boulders really well. Um, if you were one of those competitors and he was thinking about like how to set for you, what, like what would be your weak spot in the risk scale? Would it be risk, intensity, or complexity? Uh, my weak spot is definitely intensity. I mean, certainly on the uh, elite competition level, my intensity is way too low. My complexity is also way too low because I just can't figure out all the 
all the complex beta. Like I just don't really see the, you know, the heel toe hook above my head and all the, all the weird things. I just don't understand competition climbing right now. And then the risk, I mean, I'm not really good at the, the risky. Actually, no, I guess overall, I'm probably better at the risky moves. The, the uncertain ones, like trusting your foot on the, the scary slab or like stepping up onto the tiny little thing. You know, it's like, I, I'm probably best at that and definitely worst at the intensity. Would you have the same analysis for your outdoor climbing? Like, do you struggle to read sequences out? No, my outdoor climbing, I would say, is roughly the same where my intensity is for sure my weak spot. Uh, just because I can't climb the hardest grades. My risk is obviously my highest spot because I can handle, uh, you know, the uncertainty of things and, and keeping my head together. And then the complexity, I think, with outdoor climbing, I'm probably much better overall uh, because I actually am quite good at the weird trickery outdoors, like finding knee bars and finding creative rests and like heel toe cams and, you know, interesting maneuvers outdoors I'm, I'm pretty good at. But it's just that with competition climbing indoors, there's just a whole different set of... Of, of tools required and part of that might be just that i don't have the experience indoors like i just don't know which slopers you can hold and which ones are only for your feet and things like that like it's hard for me to immediately know which volume will be useful or not you know whereas outdoors i think i'm a little bit better at it you know at the top of the field there are often a few competitors who are far ahead of the rest of the field and so how do you set in such a way that you can differentiate the top several say the podium finishers versus the rest of the field without just making things way too hard for the rest of the field? I always prep when I go to a comp and I look at the list of who's going to be there and I look up on them, you know, like if, if it's a World Cup, I'll check the nationals in that country, you know, and see who won, who did well, who punted, who, you know, and if possible, why. We have a lot of videos so you can see how people are climbing. Are they really strong? Do they look really strong or do they look flustered? Uh, do they look stressed, uh, all these things. What we try and do is make sure, uh, in bouldering in particular, we ask multiple questions, right? Semifinals is four questions, uh, finals is four questions. And what's important, regardless of whoever's competing, is that the questions be extremely different, that, that they are testing very different skills. How do you make sure things are not just too hard? And the answer to that is hard for us is not a single metric. It's, it's multiple things. Um, and even the best climbers in the world all have weaknesses. No one's incredible at everything. And the trick, I've often said this to athletes I've coached, people who win uh, World Cups, they don't win by being strong at their strengths. They win usually by having the fewest weaknesses. So, you know, sure, you're very powerful, very strong. You can climb the steep, you know, powerful uh, boulders. And... When we set those, we can kind of have an expectation of like, okay, this boulder is not going to be a problem for these few people. And then the next boulder will ask a very different question. Great, you're able to flash or climb in three tries this really powerful boulder. Now, can you change gears and do something that doesn't require strength at all? That's completely about um, maybe a body placement or a bad foot or a balance move. Um, and it requires a different, a really big change in mindset. And the reality is it's very hard to do that. It's hard to be good at everything. That's what provides a good filter. When you set for a World Cup, can you, can you climb the problems that you set for the competitors? Like, um, you know, could you be on the other side of the competition? What I see my job as a root setter is, is mostly understanding what other people can do. 
um, as a root setter, that, that skill is way more important than my ability to climb things. So understanding, and you do have to have a working understanding of you know, harder or more complex movement. So yes, you need a minimum climbing ability, um, but I can safely say, you know, I've set maybe 10 um, IFSC sanctioned events. Not many times have I been in a situation where I could climb uh, most of the boulders. Like it's, I would say it's rare. It, um, no, I would say it has never happened. And um, if I can climb a few of them, I consider myself happy and lucky. You can't be a professional athlete and on top of that, uh, be a professional route setter. Very few people who even on the circuit today can climb everything that is set in a World Cup. Say maybe three or four people um, tops out of, I don't know, maybe 30 or 40 uh, route setters who are uh, regularly on the, on the World Cup circuit. From your perspective, as as gym climbing, competitive climbing really becomes its, its own thing, its its own chapter in the greater story of climbing. Um, you know, one should it maintain its connection to the outdoors, and and then two, like how does it? Like, what's a like? How do you keep people still learning um, what the outdoors has to teach, and then taking that and sort of applying it? Uh, if we want it to remain climbing, a lot of the kids who are setting these days don't climb outdoors anymore don't have time, they grew up in gyms, and, and I'm a proponent of, you know, pay them a climbing trip once a year, twice a year, get them outside, it's important, and, you know, get them to go climb in Indian Creek, get them to go climb in Yosemite, not just like all the hot, cool places that they want to go to, but, you know, that it's part of continued education to learn about, you know, the culture of climbing hands-on, of what does it mean to stand on a, you know, a crystal in Yosemite or climbing on pockets in tent sleep or, you know, um, I know my experience as a setter is based on that. And that's how I have the depth to continue to produce movement and imagine it and understand it. And kids who've grown, out of, grown up on plastic, they don't have that opportunity. And the, honestly, the way the job is structured, either you're dead beat, uh, you, like if you set three or four days a week, like some of the touchstone setters do, um, you on the weekend you don't want to go climbing I know I've done it like you hate life your body is screaming at you and even if you do there's no motivation your brain is tapped out and and, it, and there's this common idea like oh we're not going to pay for people to go climb on climbing trips and I'm like why the hell not like isn't this the value we're trying to create not anybody can be a good root setter it's you know it's physically demanding work it's mentally taxing and if you want the product to be actually good people need to you know to have experience that's just completely you know overlooked after the break we talk about where it's all headed and alex puccio turns hold to dust Element is a zero-sugar electrolyte drink mix formulated with a science-backed ratio of sodium to potassium to magnesium. Each packet delivers a meaningful dose of electrolytes free of sugar, artificial colors, or other dodgy ingredients. It tastes great, and I've used it extensively on expeditions. Element is formulated for anyone looking to restore health through hydration, and is perfectly suited for athletes, folks who are fasting, or those following keto, low-carb, whole food, or paleo diets. Try Element totally risk-free. 
If you don't like it, they'll refund your order, no questions asked. So whether you're a new or returning Element customer, you can get a free Element sample pack with any drink mix order when you go to drinkelement.com slash climbinggold. That's drinklmnt.com slash climbinggold. Dr. Squatch crafts natural, high-performance personal care products with no harmful ingredients. I don't shower often, but when I do, I use Dr. Squatch. I especially like the Summer Citrus Bar Soap. From soap to shampoo to conditioner, they help me look, feel, and smell my best for whatever adventure I go on. They're offering listeners 20% off any purchase for new customers with the code CLIMBINGGOLD, or you can go to drsquatch.com slash honald. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. There has been a trend, you know, um, where root setters used to have free reign, like set up the competition and then, you know, um, the organizers would do their part organizing and the judges would do the judging. More and more root setters are coming into competitions and being asked to set a certain type of competition. We want it to be this way. We want this number of tops. We want a lot of tops and finals or not so many or I am a little worried that if I think for me, the really interesting part about root setting uh, or about climbing, about climbing in general, is the variability. Like this idea that every time we pull on a different rock, there's going to be different and new situations that we have to, you know, we have some familiarity to or not, and we have to adapt and figure out as we go. Um, so this idea of inventing, discovering new movement and new possibilities is is really, really cool to me. I'm also quite attached to the idea that although climbing is, uh, sorry, indoor climbing is by and large completely artificial, we decide the angle of the wall, the shape of the wall, where the holds go, everything. I'm attached to the idea that there is still, if we're going to call it climbing, there has to be some, some core value connection that remains. And so when I set in a comp, even if I'm doing, you know, if I'm setting parkour moves, I'm still asking a climbing question. For me, that's the limit. So there's been this idea, uh, you know, uh, with the parkour trend, oh, these are moves you definitely wouldn't see outside. And first of all, uh, I tend to think that's generally not true. Uh, there's a ton of moves that we haven't even scratched the surface of in competition climbing that are insanely crazy. Uh, there is a danger um, for business reasons for to create a, a predictable or an expectation that we move away from that. We go towards things that are, you know, uh, more controllable in terms of result, in terms of show, in terms of... And a little bit of that is happening already with adjustments to TV formats and, uh, you know, comp formats and where the, the, the most interesting movement or the most valuable things are getting, you know, trimmed or adjusted to fit in the format of what is, you know, what is required. Do you see that stunting the pro progression of competition? For the moment, it's just a concern. I think we're still, we still have a lot of room. There's a lot of room for creativity and there's a lot of really, you know, um, uh, powerful people creating movement for climbing, uh, both in gyms and on competition circuit. But uh, it would be naive to ignore the, that pressure of, um, of professional sport um, network necessities um, that are 
definitely creeping in, you know, and everybody's saying it's for the better. And I think there's a conversation to, ha to be had. Uh, is it for the better? And, you know, I'm interested in, as a root setter, I'm interested in sharing climbing with a lot of people. That's, that's why I do it. But I want to share climbing. I don't want to share, I'm not actually that interested in sharing fitness, for instance. It's important, but I'm not a fitness person. That's not my values. I'm a climber. Paying attention to the trends and paying attention to how these big comps are influencing the business, um, influencing uh, climbing, and just making sure we, you know, stay true to the the, the history, rich history uh, in climbing, while also evolving it and growing it, which I think is awesome. You know, the, I love the abstraction, the originality that it brings. love listening to Tanbe. Like the way that he's done this all and dissected it, it's like I just I just kind of find it brilliant. Like I've been thinking through the sort of Rick idea both in my own climbing but in other things I do or just in other settings and I just think it's no surprise that that people like video game manufacturers have had Tande come in to talk about that because it's applicable to so many different things. Like, right, if you think about video games, there's if you were to think about risky moves there, it'd be like the moment where you try to beat the 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 main bad guy and there's always like some really frustrating move where it's like low percentage. Um, there's complexity in video games, right? Like you have to sort of memorize big sort of um, 3D spaces and navigate through them. The mayhem where there's a million bad guys coming at you, which is intensity. Totally. And I think that like, I don't know, what did you think about it? And because I thought it was kind of brilliant. No, I think that that Tande's risk intensity complexity system is an incredibly, basically it's a great way to articulate something that that I've often felt in climbing, but just not really known how to put words to. Because I think that when you're, uh, trying to red point a sport route outside it's common that you know you're concerned about the risky move near the anchor it's not necessarily the hardest move but you're like oh and there's that blind throw at the top to that pocket and sometimes you just miss it because it's it's hard to aim for the pocket you know it's not the hardest move and it's not like technically that hard but it's like you just hate to add something that's kind of low percentage at the top of your project and it's like you know you think about things and you talk about those terms all the time in climbing but it's rare to think of it as a matrix and, and to think of it more holistically. I think what's cool about, uh, you know, Tande's whole system is that you can apply it to all of climbing in a, in a systematic way. Like, like basically, you know, it's almost like a fundamental principle of climbing. It's like he, he's getting into like the theoretical physics of climbing where it's like, oh, this all kind of like makes sense at a, at a base level. And I'm like, oh, that's that's cool. It's like a framework that you can use to help understand all of climbing movement. You know, obviously there's um, like there's the syntax of climbing, right? There's gaston there's mantles right yeah you know, there's there's certainly like we're thrown a set of sequences that we remember even though we haven't seen that specific one but can you think of any other sport that is that's like this where some where a bunch of people come together and for one event or even for like one round they basically design a whole playing field that will get constructed and then taken down in the course of 24 hours um, I mean, is it like, is golf the closest thing to it? Like, I, I don't even know, you know, like, right. Like it's, I was trying to think about it and like, I, I'm curious if you have any, uh, if you could think, think any of the, like, what other sports are like that? But the thing about it is that I think that in, in climbing competition, the, the root setters, you know, change the medium. So they're changing the, 
the field upon which the competitors are, are competing. But I don't think that's that dissimilar to other somewhat subjectively graded sports, you know, say gymnastics, where they have judges giving scores or like diving or, you know, any or even the equestrian sports, like any of the sports where there's a judge involved. You know, I feel like in some ways the judge is is taking the place of what a root setter is doing in climbing. You know, they're basically helping to evaluate the the competitor's performance. And so it's like with root setting, the root setter is is setting up the criteria for evaluation beforehand, whereas in something like gymnastics, they're being evaluated after their performance, but it's kind of the same idea, you know, that either way there's an extra party helping to evaluate their the quality of their performance. It, it seems like it's almost moved beyond just like, I'm going to make something hard and it's become really nuanced with like a lot of different inputs and a lot of different motivations. I, I was thinking about this when, when Adam was chatting about, about competitions, like just the idea that the risk intensity complexity, it's like, it's rare that you can actually tell how physically hard something is, is in a competition. I mean, often you see problems and you're like, wow, that looks really tough, but it's hard to tell when they're physically squeezing a hold as, as hard as possible. And there are a few moments from competition history that, that I specifically remember, like um, one of the ABS nationals many years ago, like the bouldering nationals in the US. Uh, I remember watching Alex Puccio campus through this section that all the other women had tried a bunch of different ways to climb and basically failed on. And then she just crushed, like basically she turned the hold into powder in her hand and just like cranked right through it. And it's like, it's rare that you see that kind of, that kind of intensity, you know, that kind of strength on display because it's, it's rare that that's the thing that separates. Or there was a, a moment in a bouldering world cup, maybe last year, year before, or maybe one of the qualifying events, but basically like, um, I think it was Kai Hirata, but one of the Japanese competitors did this like one-handed Houdini match thing on an edge where he was like holding it one hand and then just like hopped his hand off and caught it with the other hand. Uh, but I think without feet on, it was like this totally insane match that's like an, an insane display of finger strength. And, you know, ultimately he didn't win the competition. I don't even know if he topped the problem, but it was like a display of strength that you're like, whoa, you like you don't normally see displays of strength like that in a comp. You know, 20, 30 years ago, root setting was just about making something hard. It was relatively straightforward. And now there's just so much more complexity to it. <laughs> the demands of the spectators, there's the requirements for the competition to separate the competitors. I don't know. I mean, in some ways, though, I kind of miss old competition climbing where it's just straightforward power problems where you just crank on holds as hard as you can. But it's like now the standard is just so high that you can't really separate the competition through pure power. It's like you have to increase the complexity of the problems. You have to increase the riskiness of the problems in order to separate the field. Samar Tande relocated and is setting and living with his family in Australia. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Our senior producer is Elizabeth Nakano. John Bergman is our producer. Today's episode was written and edited by me, Fitzcahal. Additional editing and mixing by Cordelia Zars, who also provided music for today's episode. The other tracks are from Brennan O'Connell. Our executive producers are Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape and Beer, and Jonathan Redsick and Ben Andy for RXR Sports. Thanks for listening. <laughs>